Sounds like a movie. Sounds like a song. The pandemic and beyond. Sounds like a movie and a beautiful song. Welcome to the Pandemic and Beyond podcast. I'm Elio Keefe, and today we are talking about memorialization. How to remember and what to remember about the COVID-19 pandemic is complex, at times divisive, and a certainly difficult subject, no more so than for those who have lost loved ones as a result of COVID-19. Just as the pandemic unfolded in the spring of 2020, we witnessed a burst of memorialising activity, driven by loss, driven by the need to grieve, a sense to fight for social justice, or to express solidarity with the bereaved. In stark contrast to the absence of such activity in the wake of the flu pandemic seen 100 years before, there is a profound sense of rupture and dislocation in the rituals of memorialization themselves. We've not been able to do the things we would normally do to remember loved ones, either collectively or individually. The pandemic has been especially disruptive to our social life and ritual practice. So we've adapted, we've moved outdoors or online to express our collective and individual sorrow. But what does this memorializing activity show us about how society has adapted to the pandemic? And how influential will this early response be on future understandings? Does this set templates for the future remembrance that will shape our understanding going forward? Does memorialization help us all move forward from the pandemic, play a role in societal resilience, or should we think of it mainly as a cultural process with therapeutic value for the bereaved? To examine the cultural reflexes of memorialization seen over the past couple of years, I'm joined today by David Tolleton, Associate Professor in the College of Humanities at the University of Exeter. David has published on Holocaust memory and commemoration in the UK, and he's led on an AHRC funded project a National Day of Reflection on the COVID-19 Pandemic, Lessons from Past Memorialization Initiatives and Attitudes in the Present. He published his report last week. Welcome to the Pandemic and Beyond podcast, David. Can we start with a relatively simple question, or perhaps we should think about it as a task? Uh, we've seen a huge burst of memorialising activity in reference and responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. There's obviously your project, which attempts to take a full-on societal view of what's happening in the UK. I can think of another project too in the Pandemic and Beyond portfolio, led by Karen Windle, on bereavement rituals. And there's a wealth of other research in memory and memorialization that obviously has happened outside the HRC parameters. So what is this reflecting? Is this reflecting something as much about academic preferences, or is there something quite incredible going on that we've seen over the past two years. Hello, it's lovely to be invited to speak. Well, in terms of the scope of the project that I was involved with, it partnered with the charity Marie Curie and their National Day of Reflection initiative. So quite early in the pandemic, Marie Curie campaigned for this event, the National Day of Reflection, and it first happened on 23rd of March 2021, and then it's going to be repeated 23rd of March this year and potentially on into the future and the sort of remit of the National Day of Reflection is very broad. Marie Curie are not especially controlling about what they see as the remit underneath this umbrella of reflection on the pandemic and kind of remembrance of the pandemic and so in some ways my project was shaped 
by that and, and it does take a very broad view it's also influenced by my work in Holocaust studies. My most recent book on Holocaust studies thought about the whole of Holocaust memory in 21st century Britain, particularly in relation to ideas of religion, diversity and secularism, and had quite a broad focus. And so I absolutely think there's value in narrower analyses of specific initiatives and specific dimensions of what's going on in terms of remembrance. But I think it's partly just due to my interest and my preferences and what I've been doing and who I was partnered with that I ended up with this project that tries to step back and think about what's going on in terms of societal remembrance of the pandemic, even as we're still within the event, and how does it relate to past precedents as well. So could you take us through a few examples that give insight into the extent of this activity or the nature of this activity in response to politics, to bereavement and loss, to ideas of social justice? Because obviously some people may not be as aware as you are of the kind of memorialization we've been seeing over the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, there's been this huge explosion of different kinds of memorialization. Some of the earliest high-profile initiatives were digital, and obviously that was an effect of this is, you know, the first global pandemic of the digital age. So um, this is the first time it was possible and that we could kind of see such activity. But also, obviously, the social distancing regulations essentially encouraged us to communicate in that way. Everyone, I think, experienced a huge rise in the use of Zoom and other social media and other um, ways of com digitally communicating. And it makes sense that memorialization moved onto such platforms. There's a group, uh, Yellow Hearts to Remember, that has had quite a lot of national attention, um, who simply just used Facebook to create these very large community of support for bereaved families. Um, there was a sort of a physical in-person element to it in that they also encouraged people to put these yellow heart posters into their walls. And so our kind of our houses and our streets became like memorial spaces. But the main way in which it played out was digitally. Another digital initiative is Remember Me that's associated with St. Paul's Cathedral. And they really stepped forward and positioned themselves as they're kind of creating this national memorial book and did so online. And they created their own digital platform in really just a few weeks quite early on in the pandemic so there's been this digital activity but we've also seen as you as you mentioned in your introduction a growth of creating kind of physical sites but particularly outdoors one of the most high profile is the national covid memorial wall and there are huge numbers of other smaller physical memorials up and down the country there are memorial trails there are memorials that have been built up on hillsides a really interesting one is a group called the forest of memory who are thinking much more long term and are creating forests in a few locations around the country where each new planted tree is linked to the story of a particular person who died from covid-19 and so the the idea there is it's a kind of physical but also a digital platform where you'll go and you'll walk around this forest but from the signage there you'll be able to link through to a digital platform that gives you information and testimonies related to particular people so there's been this kind of huge profusion of digital initiatives but also physical initiatives as well so there's no lack of activity going on 
obviously there is a sort of rhetorical tradition in the UK particularly that there is no politics for memorialization but I think most scholars would say that politics is inherent in some way to memorializing action or at least it becomes uh, articulated in those spaces so could you tell us something about the politics of this activity yeah absolutely um traditionally you know central high profile national level commemoration of events is usually associated with the state but there's a great deal of uncertainty about the extent to which the UK government meaningfully could lead memorialization of the pandemic given all the questions about its performance during the pandemic controversies over you know partygate just recently in 2022 and in my project when i interviewed organizers of memorialization initiatives lots and lots of them were very skeptical about the extent to which any government led initiative could be uncontroversial and especially groups who represent the bereaved were quite uncomfortable with the possibility of a government-led process of memorialization. So in that sense, there's politics infused in it by the very fact that it's so grassroots what has happened. Most um, activities have happened from kind of bottom up in terms of local initiatives. I should nuance that a little bit in the sense that regional governments around the UK have been a bit more active. Scottish government and Welsh government have been quite supportive, say, in the, the National Day of Reflection. Something else, though, to mention in terms of the politics of this, that many commentators and scholars writing about the pandemic have said people's experiences of the pandemic were very diverse. We didn't all just experience the same event in a single uniform way. And one of the big differences relates to race and ethnicity. So death rates from COVID-19 in the UK were higher in non-white parts of the population. And so there has been a kind of an awareness of this in some parts of memorialization. There's an organization called the Majonzi Fund, uh, organized by Patrick Vernon, which specifically tries to fund and organize memorialization for black and ethnic minority communities. And there is an element of politics there because the reason why death rates were higher in non-white population isn't due to any sort of underlying nature of the, the virus. It's to do with long-standing systemic issues to do with inequality. And for some people, that's more comfortable to address than others. I think UK government aren't particularly comfortable with that. They're not very keen in talking about systemic racism or systemic racial injustice. And so diversity of experiences during the pandemic becomes an issue in terms of, you know, how's that re represented in memorialization? I mean, I'd even say that memorialization that has attempted to be specifically non-political, St Paul's Cathedral's one of them, can in a sense end up being political by default because say, St Paul's Cathedral has had a relatively warm response from the government. And one part of that may be because they've explicitly avoided any political commentary whatsoever. And so, in a sense, ended up becoming inadvertently slightly political.
I think there is also a sense that we have seen increased use of memorialising forms and rituals to articulate the sense of grievance and harms that we can see in our society and that have become so starkly illuminated in the pandemic, especially with Black Lives Matter and the memory statue wars in the UK. And I was wondering, in, in relation to the conversations you'd had with Marie Curie and other memorial practitioners about how much international or transnational frames had been part of their considerations. Obviously, we've ended up with a quite national focus in our memorialization, but it has been a global pandemic and there have been questions from academics amongst other people about why we haven't developed more international transnational memorial culture. But is this something that they were concerned about too? Yeah, I mean, you're right that it's feeds into a wider conversation in memory studies that's been going on for 10, 20 years even, regarding basically, is it the case that the frames of our memory as a society is national, or are we increasingly thinking in more kind of global terms? Now, with regard to the pandemic, at least in the in the UK, I would say that the focus has, has pretty much all been either local or national. Marie Curie and other organisations I've spoken to as part of this project generally haven't thought in international terms about collaboration. Now, part of that with Marie Curie is straightforwardly because of their remit as an organisation. They focus specifically on the UK, but also because, at least in terms of building physical spaces, it's hard to frame things in international terms. Now, there is actually an attempt to build um, what's been called the World Memorial to the Pandemic that's going to be built in Uruguay. But the extent to which that will meaningfully be global in terms of how many people visit it and whether you know an everyday person who's bereaved during the pandemic in Britain is going to travel to Uruguay to go to this contemplative space, I think is fairly questionable. In reality, things have been more local or framed in terms of the national. Although with uneven distribution across the UK, the Westminster government have been fairly quiet about memorialisation, whereas regional governments have been more willing to get involved. Uh, Scottish government notably launching this Remembering Together um, initiative in late 2021. I wonder how much this reflects those historic memory cultures that you refer to and reflect upon in your report the fact that our memorializing culture is is perhaps dominated in some ways by memory of the first world war and memory of the holocaust i just wanted uh, to ask you about how influential you felt these ideas these cultures were and what that might tell us about how COVID memorialisation might develop in the future. Yeah, I think First World War remembrance in Britain has been often this kind of dominant frame, dominant precedent. So when I spoke to Matthew Reed, who's the chief executive of Marie Curie, he cited Remembrance Sunday as the example of how the National Day of Reflection might work. And a variety of different commentators have cited the Cenotaph in London as the example of how a national memorial, physical memorial to COVID-19 might work. Even the organiser of Names Not Numbers group, which organises memorial protests against government handling of the pandemic, he cited this, the Cenotaph as the, kind of the example of what should be built in the UK. Holocaust remembrance hasn't been cited directly 
very much in terms of remembrance of COVID-19, even though it's grown in influence and, and profile in the UK in the 21st century. Part of that might just be to do with nervousness about comparisons. There's a strong rhetoric of uniqueness around the Holocaust. I mean, and to be clear, in my report, I don't, I'm not really very keen on trying to make historic comparisons between Holocaust and COVID-19, but rather draw conversations about the memory cultures into dialogue with each other. And with regard to Holocaust remembrance, Holocaust remembrance is interesting in the UK because of how very recently it's developed. It's very much in the UK, something that's developed from the mid 90s onwards and been very much championed and pushed forward and funded by government. And that's had side effects in terms of how it's been framed. Holocaust remembrance, at least in the UK, has been increasingly framed in national terms about Britain's relationship with the Holocaust. And obviously, First World War memory is framed often in terms of national experience. One of the reasons why Spanish flu pandemic is largely forgotten in terms of public remembrance is perhaps because it defies that national story. And so perhaps as we're responding to COVID-19, there's almost a desire instinctively to frame it in terms of national story. Moving on, I would like to raise the language of developing memorialising cultures with you. I think most memory cultures use language that is ambiguous, stretchy, perhaps we could say, like reflection, which suggests a certain analytic or evaluative processes that we're asking people to come and think back over an experience somehow meditatively in a non-confrontational way and then move forward from it with some kind of evaluative judgment. I think that this is a, an example of a lot of ambiguity in the language of memory and that kind of circularity we get with remembrance and forgetting and forgetting not to remember or remembering not to forget, that kind of thing, where we all wonder what it is we're doing. I wonder what you thought the language of reflection is doing here, particularly in the National Day of Reflection. Stretchy is definitely a kind of a useful way of thinking about it. I think there's a degree of almost sort of strategic ambiguity going on. Never again, I mean, particularly with relation to Holocaust studies, is a classic example of the kind of the difficulty of this kind of rhetoric. Um, you know, what exactly are we defining as never again? Does a further genocide count as again, or is it the specifics of the Holocaust with the term reflection. Something I write about in the report from this project is that it's not always clear what we're reflecting on and why. So just in terms of the what we're reflecting on, there are different kinds of levels of scope. So it might be that we're reflecting simply on the loss of those who died from COVID-19. It might be that we're reflecting more broadly on death and dying during the period of the pandemic. So some groups, for instance, are quite keen to incorporate remembrance of those as well because people weren't able to mourn in the same way as would normally be the case due to social distancing. And Marie Curie definitely fit in that camp. Others are keen to say, no, we're, what we're reflecting on is the whole of societal experience of the pandemic. So when Boris Johnson endorsed the National Day of Reflection, he pitched it in terms of saying, well, it's about bereavement and grief, but it's also about celebrating the NHS. It's also about celebrating vaccine development, and it's also about praising society in general. And so the kind of the scope of what's being reflected on is potentially quite elastic. 
And sometimes I think people are not being critically aware of that. I mean, but strategically, uh, in fairness to Marie Curie, my sense is that they feel like this initiative is so new and so fragile and they feel sort of not powerless, but they're not the state. They can't sort of create big physical spaces or they can't kind of mandate national days in the way that the government can. And so in a sense, they're just trying to use the most uh, loosely inclusive language uh, they can and just trying to get as many people to participate. But it also leaves ambiguities about the purpose. Is this about supporting the bereaved? Is it about people supporting people with the ongoing effects of COVID-19? Is it about accountability, about pushing for an inquiry? I mean, that's very much what the, the National COVID Memorial Wall in London very much is. I mean, it's partly it's about loss and bereavement and supporting families, but it's also pointedly situated across the Houses of Parliament and it's linked in with bereaved families for justice who are asking for a government inquiry. Or it might be that reflection is about trying to prevent future pandemics. I mean, several commentators have talked about saying, you know, if we just remembered Spanish flu better, maybe we would have been better prepared for COVID-19. But Marie Curie, I think, wouldn't really be up for that narrative. That's not really how they see the remit of the National Day of Reflection. They're more focused on the kind of the now and just trying to kind of create a better discourse of death and dying. So in some ways, this language of reflection is strategically vague and trying to kind of just strategically cover a lot of different people's motivations and people's kind of focuses. The question, of course, and you might want to come back on this, is, is how effective that is. You know, scholars in memory studies across different contexts of memory studies have become increasingly sceptical about the extent to which we can really neatly have societal impacts through such kind of broadly employed terms. It's one of those things where it's you have to balance, in a sense, I suppose, the kind of the purpose of the academic commentator with appreciating the heartfelt purpose of what many grassroots organisations are trying to do, but also scepticism about, you know, potentially what may happen when this becomes linked in with power and if and the government become more involved in commemoration. We might say that it would be better if everything was really kind of split apart and say, you know, support for the bereaved is one matter. Accountability and inquiry into government behaviour is another matter. Setting up prevention of future pandemics is another matter. Trying to set up a wider, better public discourse around death and dying and bereavement is, an, is another matter. And trying to almost separate these things out. You know, the whole language of celebration of the NHS, perhaps that should be completely separated out as well. But in reality, I think on the ground, these things are often merged together my own feeling is that this language of reflection can be valuable, can have purpose, but it's just useful to try to encourage public debate about what it is that we're doing and why, and acknowledging the fact that there is contestation and variance there. I think that's the key, isn't it? We become used to thinking about memorialisation as a place where we all go and we feel exactly the same thing. And then we all get very offended to find that that's not the case. Other people might think differently or have experienced an event differently. But again, that makes them very hard to put together in a meaningful sense as a national programme, doesn't it? So um, what lessons do you think we can take away as historians, as academics working 
in these kind of collaborations and partnerships. I mean, very broadly, it's a case that we have to be critically reflective about these relationships in the sense that there's so much impetus, of course, for for impact, for collaboration with kind of non-higher education institutions. And I think, you know, that's a very good thing. I mean, for academia to have an impact and purpose in society, that's a good thing. But we also have to think about how we are useful to our collaborators and how they are useful to us and where any kind of complications may arise. With regard to kind of working with Marie Curie, they were very receptive to thinking about some of the kind of the complications, some of the ideas I'm, I'm interested in. But also I think it's important to work out what they want. I personally, as an academic, I'm always wanting to say that things are complicated, to say that we need to navigate complex narratives but obviously from Marie Curie's point of view they want specific recommendations and they want specific recommendations within a, a useful timing and so trying to produce a list of pragmatic recommendations trying to do so before the next national day of reflection I think was quite important not just simply saying it's complicated there are these, you know, complex historical, contemporary, political dynamics that have to be navigated. There you go. But actually trying to sort of frame things a bit more specifically. And that did feel slightly uncomfortable. I mean, I have to say the the part of the report that felt most unusual was writing a list of recommendations. But I think in terms of how to kind of balance these collaborations in a useful way, it's, yeah, it's just this question of kind of trying to be honest from the outset about uh, who wants what and why and when. So perhaps, David, the, at the end of our podcast, you could give us some sense of the future of memorialization. I feel this is a very difficult question because I'm asking you to give us some predictions of how a memorialization culture might develop in relation to events we still have no idea um, how they will unfold but if you could give us a sense of how you might envisage the future of these memory cultures and how they're developing I think that would be a really good way of summing up our conversation for the podcast yeah I mean any predictions that you know there's the huge numbers of caveats about no one can predict how a memory culture is going to develop we don't even know how the pandemic's going to develop literally on the day that we record this the home secretary has said that we should be prepared for a rise in cases But in terms of how all of these processes evolve into the future, I mean, I think one thing to really bear in mind is that we should be thinking about forgetting as well as societal remembering. You know, during the last few weeks since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's been very clear how the pandemic has slipped out of headlines. And, you know, rightly so, it's this kind of huge geopolitical event, but it's also very striking how we're kind of better at grappling with an event in terms of our conceptualization, where it's a kind of a war between national forces, whereas the pandemic is this broad, nebulous, vast event that was experienced in so many different ways and isn't over yet and will only be over in a sort of much more gradual way is it is very hard to get a handle on. I think we have to be open to the fact that there will be forgetting with regard to COVID-19 pandemic. The sheer weight of digital material that's been recorded is unmanageable in a sense for kind of archivists. We're never going to be able to kind of really keep a track of all the individual experiences that have been recorded online. 
Now, as I've interviewed um, different groups, it should be said, I mean, they've actually been really quite critically aware of some of this stuff, more than I was expecting. Uh, Marie Curie are actually very distinctly open to the idea that the National Day of Reflection won't last forever. In fact, they're quite reluctant to talk about next year or the year beyond that or the year beyond that. They're only really willing to talk about things in the kind of the short term, but just gesture towards possibilities for the future. The National COVID Memorial Wall in London is an interesting case where it's it's actually fading already. And they're having conversations about how they have to kind of continuously rework it and uh, recreate it, but also be aware that they want people to interact with it so that it changes over time. But with regard to whether COVID-19 creates a deep impact in terms of public consciousness over a long period of time, it's very uncertain. And we do have to think about the legacy of Spanish flu in the past, this enormous pandemic that killed probably more people than the entire First World War that's had very little impact in terms of public consciousness. It may be that a similar thing happens with COVID-19. That would be, I think, very difficult for some people who have suffered personal bereavements. But in terms of wider society, you know, it's an open question whether we have to remember the exact details of the whole of the pandemic or whether the more important question is to kind of tackle the societal injustices that were highlighted through the pandemic and that those themselves become our kind of our ongoing concern. David, we're out of time, but thank you so much for giving us your insights into the memory cultures emerging under COVID-19. For our listeners, you can find a link to David's report on the podcast website. And of course, the National Day of Reflection is on the 23rd of March. The Pandemic and Beyond team is Pascal Abisher, Sarah Hartley, Victoria Tischler, Des Fitzgerald, Karen Gray, Benedict Morrison, Garth Davies and me, Ellie O'Keefe. Our podcast editor is Olivia Reese. The music was written and recorded by Ronald Amanze. To get updates on the project, find out more about the latest research and access our other episodes of the series, you can find everything you need on our website, pandemicandbeyond.exeter.act.uk or you can follow us on Twitter at Pandemic Beyond. A box of smiles, the pandemic and beyond. Dementia Diaries. Sounds like a movie, sounds like a song. La 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 la, la 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 la, la 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 la, la 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 la.